Good to be back after men's retreat last weekend. Myself and about 20, 21 men from Grace uh, were away. Had a great time just relationally uh, deepening our uh, relationships with one another and uh, just a fruitful time. And definitely for the men who weren't able to make it, keep an eye on that for next year. I think it'd be well worth uh, your time. And then uh, two weeks from yesterday, October 13th, a reminder, is our women's conference here at church, one-day conference. Um, if you have not signed up for that, there's, it's getting, it's pretty full, but there's a few spots open, and we definitely encourage you to look into that. Of, uh, there's going to be a schedule kind of going out tonight to see what kind of what that day is going to look like, but um, if you know Christy, definitely talk to Christy about it. If you do not know Christy, go ahead and go to Grace Connect at the back and uh, ask for more information about that conference. Uh, we'll love to see as many of our women there as possible. And uh, I'm glad this is the first day since the men's retreat I got my voice back, so um, maybe the Lord's just giving me this one hour and then we'll, we'll return, but whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about it, and hopefully uh, it's not a distraction for you. But we are officially in the back half of our six-week series that we've simply entitled Vision, and we are unpacking week by week the fuel that this church runs on, week in and week out, and, and kind of setting a course for us. Uh, in this year ahead, uh, that vision um, on the screen, uh, glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And so uh, let me just kind of recap, spend a few minutes, just kind of where, where have we been with this series, and then how is it connecting to where we're going? Uh, in the first two weeks, we, we really just laid the foundational building blocks for God's vision for the local church. We, we zoomed the, the lens out, saw the Bible's big storyline, and showed how our, our primary aim in the church is to glorify God. We're not here to market ourselves. We're not here to be the center of our own universe at Grace Church. We're not the point at Grace Church. God is the point of all things. And that, is, that might sound a little strange, but when you really dig into it, and we dig, d- did dig into it, it is the best news in the world because God is the only one who can say, I am. Well, I, I am what? No, 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 before that. God, the only one who can say, I am, Period. And then we share that our primary task is to make disciples, to, to by God's grace, form and grow followers of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple is. And, and everything we do here at Grace Church should have this clear pathway to helping one another follow Jesus. And that's not just my job, it's not just the elder's job, that all disciples play a role in making disciples. Right? That, that's the unique design of the church, that as we grow, part of that growth is God using us to help others grow. And, he, and Jesus is the only one that we should follow, right? In this recent upsurge of social media we've had in the last decade, everything's all about followers now, right? How many followers do you got? How many followers does he got? Oh, he, he must be important. He's got a lot of followers, right? All of a sudden, this ancient word has become newly manifested in our culture, but we stand on the rock that the only person worth following is Jesus Christ. And with those two building blocks in place, we move to how are we going to accomplish those things at Gray's Church? I put it this way. If glorifying God is our purpose and making disciples is our job, then what's, what's the pathway to make that happen? And that's where we get to these four distinctives you see displayed on the stage. Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered service, Christ-centered mission. You, you put those together and you have this roadmap. You have a roadmap of how a faithful church will live out its calling 
to impact the world. And, and what I've said multiple times, what I'll continue to say in this series, is that what I'm after above all else in this series is clarity. I want you to be clear on why you're here. I wanted you to be clear on what you should be doing, what you as part of the church should be pursuing. I want to be clear on laying that out. Now, whether you disagree with that or you disagree with that, that is up to you. But I want to make sure from our end, we are crystal clear on the pathway. So this is now a seemingly dated illustration since we are 100% all reliant on our GPSs more than we should be. Like I'm embarrassed how much I use it just around our area. Like just plug it into the GPS. I just don't know directions anymore. It's just making us dumber, but that's another point. Um, But when it comes to receiving directions to go somewhere, isn't clarity the most important thing you need? So if you can think way back to the pre-GPS days, all right, can you think back that far? You had to memorize what somebody said on how to get somewhere. Or for those of us who weren't alive pre-GPS or you just can't think back that far, I don't know, just pretend you spilled coffee on your iPhone uh, when you started setting out and that now you don't have your GPS. And let's say you had to stop and, and let's say you're coming to Grace Church for the first time and you had to figure out how to get there. And so you stop and ask someone, uh, do you know how to get to Grace Church? And they say, yes, I, I can get you there. And they go, okay, give me the directions. What if they said this? Um, you're you're going to go for a while, and then you're going to take a right. And then somewhere around there, there's a highway. Get on the highway. And you're going to go on that highway for a good bit. And then there's going to be an exit. Get off the exit. And then somewhere off that exit, you know, within you know, a few minutes, there's Grace Church. Like you look back at them and go, No. I need more than that. I need distances. I need street names. I need exit numbers. And yet, I think the way many of us and the way many churches approach their vision and their pathway, it's kind of the same way. Very vague. Go do a little bit of this. Stay away from that stuff. Join that ministry. Hang around those people, and then you'll be a full follower of Jesus Christ. We should hear that and go, no. You should expect clarity from us on how to travel on the roadway of discipleship, of knowing, the process of knowing and growing in Jesus Christ. And so with that said, our roadmap runs through four stops. And last week, Pastor Jeff preached on the first, Christ-centered worship. And, and, And as he got across, it's first on purpose. Because when someone um, believes in Jesus Christ, conversion is primarily a reorientation of worship, if you think about it. When you believe in Jesus Christ, what primarily changes is what you love most. You're going to be in the same jobs, you're going to be in the same family, you're probably going to live in the same neighborhood from when you're not saved to when you become saved. But what changes, and it changes everything, is what you love most. It's a reorientation of worship. And worship, as Jeff said, is not something we turn on and then we turn off. Like we come to church and we worship and then we go home and we're not worshiping anymore. That's not the way the Christian life works. Like it's this on-off switch. But because reality is everybody's a worshiper. And you, you believe in Jesus or you believe in something else. It doesn't matter. You will worship something. Something is in your life that you love most. And it's a delight to worship that thing, not a duty And what we are crystal clear on is that that is best when Christ is at the center of that worship. And a disciple who glorifies God will be a man and woman who sees Jesus Christ as the center, and that will find itself in every area of life. And and then we also have to say that the Bible puts a special emphasis 
on the weekly corporate gathering of God's people in the church. Right? It's why we call this a worship service. And that the time we gather, it's not the only time we worship. It's not the only form of worship. I think we can say it's the most important aspect of worship in your life because the Bible tells us that it is God's way of sustaining us in the faith. That God supernaturally ordains the regularly singing, praying, and preaching of God's word to God's people gathered together to glorify his name and help us follow him. And so that's why over the last 2,000 years and, and today across the world in regions where it's illegal to gather corporately, like it's illegal for our brothers and sisters in China and, and, and Iran to gather in the church, but they're doing it. They are risking their lives, risking their families' lives um, to gather together to worship. Why? Because it's so vital. And believers across every culture and every time have gathered together corporately because it was so vital because we cannot be sustained without it. And so we say, hopefully as lovingly and as clearly as we can, brothers and sisters, Sunday morning should not be an optional discussion amongst disciples of Jesus Christ. It should take a backseat to nothing. So if you have children, let, let me tell you a question that you just do not want to have in your home. Um, hey, Dad, are we, are we going to church this weekend? It just shouldn't be a question. You get to a point where they just know Sundays we go to church. Sundays we gather with the people of God and it cannot take a basket to nothing because our faith cannot be sustained without it. In our world, man, we could go on and on. All the different things that could just fit in, fit in, fit in. And it's just amongst the people of God, Christ-centered worship. Nothing should take a backseat to this, to gathering together. It's the first stop on the roadmap. If you missed that sermon last week from Pastor Jeff, I encourage you to go on our app, go on our website, Find it, listen to it, watch it, however you want to do it, because that is a vital aspect to this roadmap. And now we move to the second distinctive that will help us make disciples to the glory of God at Grace Church, and that is Christ-centered community. So our passage is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. I want to walk through this passage together, really unpack what, what is John communicating to this church. And then at the end, we're going to finish with uh, some principles of which, how can we apply that passage to Christ-centered community here at Grace Church. So would you open your word with me? We're going to start with verses 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. First John, uh, for those who do not know the background of the Bible, was written by the Apostle John, one of the original 12 disciples, and the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And by all accounts, he was the only one of the 12 disciples, original 12 apostles, who was not martyred, who was not killed for his faith. He was actually the only one to see old age. 
And so he writes this letter towards the end of his life to this church in the city of Ephesus, along with two other letters, that's 2 John and 3 John. And then he would be the one who would receive the revelation from Jesus Christ and then write the book of Revelation, the final book of our Bible. And so I tell you that because it means that John is the only apostle who saw the second generation of the church. You know what I mean by that? That he was old enough to see men and women step into leadership positions in the church who were not eyewitnesses of Jesus. That they heard it from parents or from people older than them, and then they stepped up, and then they, and near the end of the first century, grew into these leadership positions in the church. All these churches were planted by people who had seen or had personal interaction with Jesus, people like Peter or John or Paul or James and others. And so here was the big question at the end of the first century. Is this church, whole church movement going to survive after those men died? After those personal eyewitnesses died, would the second generation guard and keep the true belief and move things forward, keep things moving forward, or would this just sputter out? This was a you know, little 30, 40-year movement, but eventually it's just going to sputter out and die. That's what everyone in the Roman Empire thought. So John, in his aim in this letter, is in a sense back to the basics, to re-bolster the foundation of faith, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Jeff preached on last week. To ensure that always remained the cornerstone. And so in this letter of 1 John, he's being very clear in the foundations of the gospel. He's very clear in what we ought to believe in. And then he moves to this passage we're in this morning, and he reaffirms this foundation of how a community of people in faith should act towards one another. What should a church look like in the way they treat one another? Knowing that right belief always leads to right behavior, what's the behavior of a church look like? And if you had to sum up John's theology of kind of Christian life, Christian behavior, you could boil it down to this one phrase. Love one another. Love one another. Really, really simple to say easy on some level to understand, my gosh, really hard to do. Really hard to do. And listen, if it wasn't hard, John and the rest of the Bible wouldn't constantly be giving us this command. The sheer repetition of this in your Bible should be objective evidence of the fact that it's not easy or else they wouldn't have to keep telling us over and over and over again. And he's going to unpack what this phrase means. But he starts in that verse 11. This is the commandment you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. And then he starts to unpack it. And you see the first thing he does to unpack it is he contrasts it to its opposite. Don't hate one another, right? So our first kind of point here is love, don't hate. Paul's theology, uh, John's theology of love in the community is love, don't hate And I think we do this far more often than we may even realize. When we want to get a point across, a point we really want to emphasize, we'll often contrast it with what we don't want you to do. All right, so think about your homes. Think about the person who's the clean person in the house. All right, you have that person in your mind. This is probably a phrase because it was in our house all the time growing up. Um, Hey, put your dishes in the dishwasher. Immediately followed by, don't put them in the sink. Put them in the dishwasher contrasted to what you don't want them to do. Don't put them in the sink. And we had to be told that over and over and over again because it's a really hard command. But here's the thing. (laughs) Anytime you're given directions, hey, come park in this parking lot. Don't park in the street. You'll get towed. 
Right? So we give a command and then we immediately contrast it with what we don't want them to do. And this is what John does. He gives the command, love one another, and then he contrasts it with what he doesn't look like. And he's very intentional how he does it. He uses an illustration by going all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 4. To emphasize, this has always been the point. Genesis 4, we have the first siblings in the Bible. And it did not end well. I mean, I think it's fair to say, often if you have siblings growing up, you can describe it as a love-hate relationship. Okay, Cain and Abel took that to another level. Uh, So you have Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. They get kicked out of the garden, but they've still been given this cultural mandate by God. Be fruitful and multiply. And Eve gives birth to the first two sons, first Cain and then Abel. And we read in Genesis 4 how Cain and Abel both brought an offering to the Lord, but Cain did it with evil motives. Abel did it with righteous ones. So God accepted Abel's offering, but rejected Cain's. And so Cain hated Abel because of this. And that hatred led to taking his life. The first murder in the world happened between brothers in cold blood. And so you might be sitting there listening going, that's kind of an extreme illustration, John. Like murder is next level. Like it's a bit of a stretch to say not loving someone means you want to murder them. Like that is just taking it up a notch. And, and I would just caution us to be careful and let's consider Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21, 22. You can see it on the screen. You have heard it was said to our ancestors, do not murder And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You see, murder is just the outward expression of inward hatred and anger. And God judges the heart. He judges the inward motivation. And so hate at its furthest point leads to taking life. Whereas loving someone leads to giving life. And they're polar opposites. They can't coexist. It's one or the other. So John says to the church, love one another. Love, don't hate. Church, give life. Don't take it. And on this note, John reminds the church. He kind of has a little side tangent here. says, by the way, listen, um, don't be surprised if and when the world hates you. Speaking of hate... There will be times where the world's going to hate you. And in this sense, he is referring to the world as those who do not know Christ, those outside the church. And he's just laying before the church, listen, it's possible to do everything right and still be hated. I mean, look at Abel. He did nothing wrong. He was righteous in God's eyes. He gave a righteous offering and he was murdered in cold blood. And that's kind of a theme we see all throughout the Bible that we don't like to talk about that much. The 12 12 apostles I just mentioned, 11 of them killed for their faith. Stephen was the first in Acts chapter 7, bold in his faith, compassionate in the way he laid it out, and then was stoned to death. Even before that, John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way for the Christ, he got beheaded. It's natural for the world to hate those who are of God, but this is what's important. John says, And this is so key for us today. You don't need to drop to their level. You don't return hate with hate. You've passed from death to life, he says. That should not be possible of you. 
Martin Luther King said it like this, do not stoop so low to someone's hate that you return their hate. Do not, give them, do not stoop so low to their hate that you return their hate. Wherever the gospel is planted, love is the fruit that grows, not hate. So that's first. Let's keep going. As I feel my voice start to deteriorate. Verses 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Verse 18, little children, let us not love the word, not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Second exhortation from John to the church. Show, don't speak. Show, don't speak. The phrase love one another, that, that's a biblical command, right? That's an action. Love one another. And, and here's the great part about the Bible that I just want to point out every time I see it. It doesn't just give you commands of what you need to do. It will always provide how you can actually do it. If all we're told is what we need to do, and then you walk out every week, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you can't do that, but you got to do this, that's just a weight and a burden that you cannot stand under, that you were not meant to stand under. Because if all we're told is what to do without being shown how, it will crush us. And I think this gets so confused so often when it comes to Christianity that people will see Christianity, it's just this, this list of rules. Do all these things, don't do any of these things, and then your acceptance will be based upon how well you follow that list. That at the end of the day, God's just going to tally it all up and we're going to see where this balance is. It's just not the Bible's message. That's not Christianity or the gospel at all. I think we're going to have this up on the screen. A quote from Tim Keller puts it best. He says, ordinary moralistic religion operates on this principle. I live a good and moral life. Therefore, God accepts me. But gospel Christianity operates in the opposite way. God accepts me unconditionally in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I live a good and moral life. That is so vitally important to understand in the Christian faith. If you go the first way, you'll be crushed. If you go the second way, you'll be freed in Christ to live the life God has called you to live. And so our behavior in this passage in particular, loving one another, it comes as a result of gospel gratitude for what has been done for us. Where do we learn to love like this? John, thank you, Jeff. John tells us the instruction, where do we learn to love like this? We look to the cross, where Jesus showed his love in such a way that it cost him his life in order to give us ours. He showed the love. So maybe you're aware of this, maybe not. There's many who have pointed out the connection between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. So we're going to have them up on the screen. John 3.16, maybe one of the most popular verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then 1 John 3.16, we just read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. One commentator put it like this, 
that John 3.16 says what God gave us. 1 John 3.16 says what we ought to give others. Do you want to see love? You want to see what love is? Like, do we need that question answered now more clearly than ever. You want to see what love is? Look to the cross, John says, where Jesus came and willingly gave his life for those who believe in him, who confess and repent of their sins and fully surrender to him. And then you want to show love? You want to show love? Answer's the same. Look to the cross. This is the motivation and the example of what it looks like to love others because loving others is always sacrificial. True love always costs us something. And the cost is always worth it. This is John's way of saying to the church, show your love. Don't just say it. If anyone sees a brother in need and yet doesn't show him love, how can they claim to have received the love of Christ when they were in need? Speak, don't show, don't just speak. We'll get back to this in a bit, but first, let's finish this passage before we really apply this to Grace Church and Christ-centered community. Verses 19 to 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. I don't have time to unpack everything in those verses, but let me just quickly point out a couple of things that are really important for our discussion this morning, and I'll sum it up like this. Stare at Christ, not yourself. Stare at Christ, not yourself. Uh, John anticipates, I think, a reaction of discouragement amongst those who are hearing this read because they are probably struggling with the command to love one another. We've seen that all throughout the New Testament. The Jews and the Gentiles, when they come together, it's a real struggle to love one another. And they're probably thinking, man, I, I can't do this. I must not be a Christian. This is horrible. And so he seeks in this letter to just provide some assurance. Because we all know, we talked a lot about this at the men's retreat last weekend, nothing is more disheartening than our own self-condemnation. No one accuses us more than we do. Because no one knows our own depravity more than we do. There's a guy, Matt Smethurst. He's a great follow on Twitter. He, uh, he wrote it like this. It stuck with me. If our worst critics would climb into our hearts, they would only find more material. If our worst critics would climb into our hearts, they would only find more material because no one knows our faults better than we do. And so with that, we're prone to shame ourselves by staring at ourselves and struggling with this doubt and our guilt. And, and sometimes conviction is right because we did sin, and it's the Spirit convicting us. But other times, we're just prone to holding ourselves captive to our own judgment, always questioning ourselves. 
And John tells us right here, whichever the case, whether it's rightful conviction or you just shaming yourself, the remedy is the same. Lift your eyes. Stare at Christ. Because when we refocus on Him, on what He has done, on His total and complete forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, that instills a confidence and assurance back into us. That reminds us daily, oh yeah, it's His work that I'm saved, not my own. And that confidence spurs us more toward Him and not away from Him. And that's what propels obedience, not just our ability to perform. And so that's so important. What are ways every single day you have built into your schedule that fix your eyes back on Christ, back onto what he's done, and eyes just off yourself, staring at yourself? Doing that will keep you from either being puffed up in pride that you're just awesome all the time, and it will keep you from being this kind of real self-hatred that you're just the worst. The remedy's the same. Stare at Christ. He's awesome. And through him, you're awesome. And then John wraps up this point like this. This is God's commandment, right? He kind of he pauses there and just says, again, reminder, this is God's commandment. Are you listening? This is it. Believe in the name Jesus Christ and love one another. He sums it up like that, that a common belief amongst the community of believers leads to a common love. So how can we apply this message to Christ-centered community in such a way that clarifies the role of community on the pathway of making disciples to the glory of God here at Grace Church? Very quickly, five principles. And I know some of you are like, really, Pastor? You're starting another outline. You're 25 minutes in. All right, I'll be quick. Five principles because I want to be really clear. Number one. The primary application of loving one another occurs in the local church. So I put myself in your seat. What are some possible objections you might have to what we're preaching up here? And one might be uh, a pushback, might see, okay, I see from the passage it's clear that a believer is supposed to love others, but that passage does not say anything about the local church. And, And you know what? I can love others wherever. I don't need a church to do so. I don't need to be constrained in that. I can love sometimes even better outside of a church. And so just a couple of points on that end in case that is on your mind. John clearly throughout here is talking about a specific love for, quote-unquote, the brothers, meaning those who are in the faith. Right? It was all throughout the passage, but I'll just repeat verse 14. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And then he purposely uses Cain and Abel as an illustration and then applies that to the church. He uses brothers and then applies that to the New Testament and the church. Our siblings in the faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our fellow believers, for in Christ we all have one Father. So yes, we are called to love people in the world, but there's a particular love that is geared towards family members. And we might use that same word, love, for everything, but it's going to look a little bit different for fellow believers. It's going to have a deeper sense to it. And so you might say, okay, fine, Uh, I I believe even that we should uh, love Christians in general, but I'm still not seeing how this is connected to a local church. I could podcast and YouTube my way to, to glory and just love people on my own and sleep in on Sundays 
and not have to go to a group? Why is this whole local church thing a part of it? And so here's where I would just remind you, who is John writing to here? He's writing to a church. This is not just a blast general announcement to all the Christians in the world. John is writing to a church in Ephesus, and the only Christians who would be reading this or hearing this are those in the context of a corporate gathering of believers. Okay, so um, D.A. Carson says it like this. In the first century, there was no such thing as a Christian who was not part of a church. That is really a recent phenomenon, this idea of I can just be a Christian and be fine, but don't need to be connected to that kind of archaic church thing. And how it worked was a letter would be written to a church, and it would be sent to a church, and it would be read in the corporate gathering, probably copied, and then it would be sent to another church and just circulated to area churches. Every person hearing this would be doing so in the context of their corporate gathering in the church. So the original audience knew that when John says, love one another, the the people he's talking about are the people to the right and to the left and in front of them and behind them. People in the church Principle number two, Christ-centered community is not only marked by shared belief, but by shared love. Let me put it another way. It's not enough to say that a church consists of people who have the same doctrine, who have the same beliefs. That is true, but it's not enough. We do have the same doctrine in, in a triune God about a fallen world, about the person and work of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross and the empty tomb and being saved by faith alone. Those are all doctrines. I would die for those doctrines. And yet, as vital as they are, that people in a church share those same convictions, it's not enough. Ray Ortland is an author, pastor down in Nashville, He wrote a book and frames it like this. A fruitful church is one where there's both a gospel doctrine and a gospel culture. And he writes this. This is a book our staff is actually reading together right now. He writes this. I think it's going to be on the screen. Quote, few things are more urgent for us than to regain credibility as people who know how to love for Jesus' sake so that his glorious gospel is unmistakably clear in our churches. There's nothing I fear more as a senior pastor of Grace Church than for someone to come in and hang around for a while and say, you know what, I agree with their doctrine, but I don't sense any love in that place. I don't sense any love in that culture of that church, despite what they say they believe. And this is a threat for any church. Let me show you how. The irony in 1 John is that he's writing to the church at Ephesus, but this is not the final word we get on the church at Ephesus. The final word, what we know about this church, comes in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus wrote seven letters to different churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, one of them being Ephesus, and he writes this in Revelation 2. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So far, sounds good. That's a church I want to be a part of. And then this, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Still sounding good. But then verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love 
you had at first. What Jesus is calling out in the church of Ephesus is that I love your doctrine, but you've abandoned your love. Presumably love for God, love for others, the greatest commandment. And to that, Jesus was saying, if you do not change soon, I'm going to remove your light. Doctrine is important for making disciples. It's vitally important. Don't get me wrong. It lays out the way to truth where we believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, as John wrote. But doctrine can be emptied of its power by a church that does not know how to love one another. And remember, it's a model that reflects a family love. And what I mean by that is that I'm going to love my family differently in the way I love everybody else. Right? There's a family love where there's a little bit more grace. And there's a little bit more patience because it's your family. And yes, there's tension, but there's concern and there's care to the point of sacrificing willingly. Because the interests of my family mean more to me than my own. That's family love. And that's the love that, it got, that God calls us to live out in the church. Where other people's interests get put ahead of our own interests. And then you have a gospel culture. Well, what does that actually look like, though? John does not leave us hanging, leads us to principle three. Love in Christ-centered community is shown, not merely spoken. You think about any relationship that you would call a loving relationship in your life. Actions always speak louder than words. We already saw the climactic example of this with the Father in John 3.16. He loved, this, he loved the world so much that what did he do? He sent his love into the world. That's an action. And then Jesus loved sinners so much that he went to the cross to die for them. That, that's an action. So if you think about a good loving marriage or just a great friendship in your life, it, words matter, but isn't it the actions that you tend to remember most? As you look back, the actions that put a love on display in a countless number of ways, big ways, small ways. Again, we don't diminish words. Words can be life-giving, giving the word of God to one another. That is important in a church community. But how important is it for a community of people who love Jesus Christ to show ways that they love one another? And I would just encourage you to sit here for a little bit, maybe even going home this week, just praying over this. As you examine your calendar, can you honestly ask yourself, what are ways that you show love for others in this church? Praise God it's happening, man. Praise God God's doing a work and binding people together, but everyone needs to take this on to themselves and just honestly examine and ask themselves, what are ways I am showing my love for this church. Because here's the exciting part. It's exciting. There's a countless number of ways to do so. There's not just three ways you can love other people. There are countless, limitless number of ways to love other people. And this connects a little bit to next week's sermon on Christ-centered service. But the reality is that we are freed to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in doing so, feel loved by them. And John says it like this. If anyone has the world's goods, if everyone has much of something and sees a brother in need, they should help. And that's, just a, that's a very basic, simple, but powerful example. That in the church, there should be the greater giving to the lesser. 
And again, it might happen in some big public ways, but the fuel this church will run on is a community of people constantly showing one another love in small, even forgettable ways that most people will never see. Ways that members help one another financially or materially materially when there's a need. How about all the times people make meals for others who just had a surgery or a birth that they're not able to prepare meals on their own and people are just bringing meals to their house for months at a time? Or how about times when people can just commit their time to one another? This is not just rich helping the poor. That sometimes our most valuable currencies are time. And people who have, for whatever reason, or in a season in life where they have some more time, can go help out some other people who don't have as much time. One way that I know this happens throughout our church, and I would love to just see it more and more, is older women offering their time in their day to relieve young mothers. Just a couple hours to sleep, to go run errands while they watch their kids. And being in a life stage where I'm married to a mom with young kids who has received this blessing My prayer is that every young mom in this church would have people emailing and calling them consistently to ask if they can just come out for a few hours. To you, it's just a few hours. To a young mom, that's the world. I could go on and on. Those are just a few examples. Offering our time, offering our treasure, offering our talents to to bless others in the church. It's really fun to give. It's really humbling and joyful to receive. And it's all love. And the primary ethic underneath it all that John points to is men and women who have much of something can see someone in need who has less and say, I want to help. I want to help. This is how a gospel doctrine becomes a gospel culture. And this is how people are helped in following Jesus Christ. Bear with me. Two left. Number four. In order to love one another, we need to know one another. In order to love one another, we need to know one another. That true and loving Christ-centered community requires time and commitment. And this is really hard for us in Bergen County. This is really hard for me because we just feel like we have no time ever. Everything's just so busy and jam-packed and you just have like such razor-thin margin, but we all know you just can't shortcut relationships. In order to love one another, we need to know one another. And so um, all of our ministries within this church are not just ministries to fill your calendar. We don't just want you to be good church folk who are really busy with church stuff. Every ministry should be an opportunity to know each other and in doing so, disciple one another. If we're not making disciples in a ministry, why are we doing it? And so our grace groups ministry that we talk about all the time, that is primarily a relational ministry. The content and the studies, they're good and they're important to be rooted in that, but they're a means through which people can connect, can relate, can cultivate loving relationships where they help one another follow Jesus to the glory of God. And like we're just three weeks into this fall season of grace groups, and I just encourage you with everything I have, just give it a shot. For the next seven weeks, just give it a chance. It's worth the time, it's worth the energy that God can use you to help others grow as you grow yourself. And every ministry, grace classes, mops, and anything that we do should have a community aspect to it. Even worshiping on Sunday morning, that greeting time, that sitting next to another, having our head on a swivel. What people will remember most about Sunday mornings often is not the sermon. It's not what songs you sung. It's little five-minute conversations you had before or after the service. 
that someone encouraged you, that you came to church and they used you to encourage someone else going into maybe a tough week. In order to love one another, we need to know one another. And then lastly, number five, the love of a Christ-centered community is God's witness to the world. You know why I think John was so passionate about this? You wonder why I think he was so passionate about love and people loving one another in the church? I think it's because of a single line he heard Jesus say in his ministry that he was the only one who recorded it in his gospel. John 13, 35, coming upon Jesus' final week on earth, he says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know why that's such a powerful witness? Because it's really hard to love one another. It's really hard to love one another. It, it, it's, it sounds great, and it's really hard in your day-to-day life. And if we can do it by God's power and mercy, then that will be the most powerful witness we can show a world that desperately needs him. And I'll leave it at that because that will bleed into our Christ-centered mission in a couple of weeks. But let it just be the finishing note for us this morning that a Christ-centered community will only be as effective in making disciples as it is in first loving one another. Let's pray.